Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this still is not episode 29. I have a feeling we're not going to make it to episode 29, Mario. We may be doing this for a long what time. A, one of us might make it. Um, do you remember the beginning of the year, though, when we were, had this big worry, the big 2020 worry for Pivotal Film was, you know, would we make it to the end of the year with the list? Like, yeah. would the list run out before we're thinking about all the special episodes we could kind of jut into the middle mm-hmm. um, to make it last as long as possible yeah because oh yeah that's not a worry i have at all anymore me neither me neither my yeah. friend yeah we may do like um i don't know we might still be doing this in like yeah uh yeah and actually that's that's kind of like the uh gist of what we're gonna be doing now for a while i guess um is it's a good gist good gist yeah this is a dumb idea i had i don't know if it's so dumb but a lot of us should be um, staying at home. Uh, some of us uh, have, have to work still, go into the offices because we're essential employees. And uh, if you're one of those people, I I definitely feel for you. I'm, I'm yep. amongst your ranks. I received an email yesterday from our HR representative saying I'm a level one state employee now. Yeah, I was going to say, you essential act- employee. you're actually essential. You are not like an employee at Michael's or something. Or, yeah, game, I mean- or GameSpot. You know what I mean? You're like... <laughs> okay. GameStop finally closed, but oh, good, yeah, um, but yeah, you're legitimately an essential, an essential person, which is, which is that must make you not feel an, good. Not an essential human being, but an essential employee. I, I fell into it, but uh, if you are one of those essential employees who, even if you work at a Michaels, uh, I definitely feel for you during this time. I guess you should stop well, working. You feel- should. T- I yeah, I feel bad that you have to work. Um, you are whatever <laughs> your employers are telling you. You guys are not essential. Um, you're essential, but your work is an essential. You're an essential current. person, right? But we just we don't need the baskets and um, the flowers and the cake making supplies. Um, no, right now. right now, right now. Um, but if you do have the luxury of being at home, and uh, you know you're, you're wondering what to do with yourself, well, we're on that train as well because we are doing a whole lot of nothing ourselves for the most of the time right just trying to figure it out yeah i mean we play a lot of video games the kids start school um uh you know distance learning uh next week like officially so they have to be logged onto the computer from 8 30 to 3 10 every day doing stuff you interesting know. so like like they have they they're they're still young enough where they have like just one core teacher right they do, but they have specials, and they're—I ha- mean—they're having you know distance learning for the special teachers, like you know music and art and all that other stuff. I'm how do you no- do? How do you do distance learning PE? No idea, but they're going to do it. <laughs> they're going to do something. I think it's Fucking just going to be a suggestion of like do this cross year. CrossFit is yeah. finally coming in the they're, fashion. They um, we happen to live in a town where it's one to one Peloton to student ratio, so we got our <laughs> Peloton. Our junior Peloton from from school, so um, yeah, we're ready to go. Just monkey bars and an angry New York trainer yelling at children. Yeah, maybe um, that would be nice. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of same. Been playing a lot of tabletop simulator. Been playing a lot of Slay the Spire. But uh, in our spare time, we decided since we're not going to be really doing lists, um, and because uh, there's a totality of really nothing coming out in the cinema for the foreseeable future. It's going to be some streaming movies that we might discuss or some movies that kind of pop up that we might discuss. Um, yeah. We would, Good. Yeah. We would, we would look to the films that we, we mentioned this often uh, before the films that kind of uh, 
make up the holes in the jigsaw puzzle that is our um, overall vision scope of cinema. Mm. Uh, and we've been using, at least I, I suggested the use of the last ever uh, sight and sound best uh, top 100 films list. How come that's the last um, ever? Uh, sight and sound, I think everyone from sight and sound just quit as of a couple months ago. Because of? Some, there's some labor issue. I oh. didn't look it up. That's fine. Let me look it up right now. Um, Sight and Sound magazine. I think they did. I think that happened. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it wasn't Sight and Sound. We're just trying to stir up controversy, so they'll they'll mention us in some new some new magazine. Maybe it wasn't Sight and Sound. Maybe it was a different different magazine. Oh well, well I said oh, yeah, it. It's out. Like... It's out there. It's out there now. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I definitely can't edit it out. No, no. Um, but we used their most recent list uh, from 2012, which had Vertigo replace Citizen Kane as the number one film. Um, we decided to use that list to look into the films that kind of, you know. That, that we both had not seen. Uh, a lot of these, most of these films we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but a few we haven't. Do you uh, have a percentage of stuff on this list that you think you've seen? Or that you know you've seen? Not off the top of my head. Um, I think for the top 10, I haven't seen two of these films. Well, two of the ones in the top 10, I, I mean, A Man with a Movie Camera, I, I don't even, I've never even heard of that. But again, I'm not, you know, super into silent Russian documentaries from the 20s so it's yeah it's not super surprising that it escaped my notice i've i've heard of it um there yeah i I, but i also haven't seen it the other one i hadn't seen i just never got around to sunrise yeah i hadn't seen that one either um Um, but you know what we weren't feeling a silent film this week no no i was not feeling silent Uh, filmy um and so the the first movie that kind of shows up on our list that well, I, I haven't seen a late late leaked yet. Uh, late anta late. Oh God, Jean Vigo's only film. What is that? Late anta late. Oh, um, Leolante. Leolante. Yeah, I, I'd never seen Leolante. I don't know. Have you seen Leolante? Uh, oh, Le Atalante. Um, I have not, but it is on um, Roger Ebert's great movies list, so I should have seen it. Yeah, and you know. Hazard uh, Balthazar, um, I haven't seen. I haven't seen Persona. Uh, have you seen Persona? You haven't that, seen Persona? Was, I have not seen Persona. Oh, yet. you've got to watch Persona. Yeah, I know. I almost suggested Persona, but I figured you would have seen Persona. Well, it's it being Ingmar Bergman's some... like only horror film, like only kind of yeah. quasi horror film makes it seem like I should have seen it. You're talking to someone again who we and we've talked about this on the podcast before that had a really deep, 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 deep criterion film problem. So all, a, a lot of these things that are on this list have been criterions for a long time, and I've owned a lot of them at one time or another. Um, but yeah, Persona's great. There's actually a whole bunch of stuff in um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire that I kind of drew parallels with Persona. A lot of the framing stuff is very Persona, especially that first scene on the beach when they're trying to look at each other. And the way Don't spoil face- it. Oh, okay, Don't sorry. spoil Persona. I'm sorry. I won't spoil it. I'll, but- watch, it. I'll watch it tonight, maybe. Um <laughs> And then after that, I, I think, I mean, I still haven't seen Leo uh, Leventer yet. 
either. You haven't seen that one yet either? I'm not a big Michelangelo Antonioni fan. Yeah. But um yeah, I, I've told you my my history of cinema is is actually pretty sparse compared to yours. I think I, maybe I have more of a silent film history. Well, you're definitely more versed uh, in very specific in specific things. So, like you know, you showed me that you texted me that picture of you watching Criterion's German Expressionism um, block there, and I was like, well, yeah. It's perfect timing for a German expressionism showcase on Criterion. Well, do you know what? I also texted you a picture, a, a screenshot of a film. Did you know what movie that was? No. What was that? That film is really important to today's discussion. Oh, is it? the first movie uh, that, that re- finally decided, because you know what? We, we, earlier, we're going to go with some other movies, right? Some movies truffling around. We want something a little, and, and this isn't a light film, but it's something a little lighter. Yeah, something that it's wasn't going to ruin our day. Ruin our day. Maybe ruin a couple hours. Maybe maybe, maybe, maybe not, not be the most uplifting film. Um, so we decided that uh, tw- number 21 from the 2012 Science Sound List, uh, Contempt, by Jean-Luc Godard. And that screenshot I showed you was from Fritz Lang's M. Oh, okay. Watched for the first time in like 15 years uh, on Sunday. Wow, pretty drunk. (laughs) How did it work? Pretty drunk. Still good. It's not my favorite Lang. Yeah, we talked about that. Which apparently is is Lang's favorite Lang, if if contempt is to be believed. But uh, uh, yeah. I don't. Is there? I'm sure there's a trailer. I'll put something in here. Um, but so yeah, contempt is. Um, and Jean-Luc Godard is is somebody who's pretty consistently been on both science sound list. There is a, a another list, a, a compilation list of the thousand and one films you should watch before you die. Mm-hmm. Um, which is I don't. I will. The next episode, I'll credit the person who created that list. But uh, he uses the compilation of Sight and Sound and a few other sites like AFI sites um, to create like just a, a compilation of films. And I think Godard might be the most represent. Godard and Renard are like the two most like representative that makes think, sense. directors yeah. on that list. Yeah. Um, I'm not admittedly a big Godard guy. Like uh, like A.O. Scott, uh, I, I am, you know, kind of half and half when it comes to Godard, so... Well, yeah. our good friend this Richard is... Brody loves Godard, so... Yeah. Well, yeah. I think Breathless is fucking garbage. Well, here's the thing with Breathless. I mean, it's really... So I watched um, I watched Contempt last night, um, and then afterwards I watched Breathless, and then I watched half of um, Band of Outsiders, which is the movie that came out after Contempt, because I just wanted to see, I wanted to compare, um, you know... I haven't seen Band of Outsiders. Um, okay. I still haven't seen Jules and Jim, either. Mario, you got to get some criterions. 
Well, I have that channel. I have a channel worth of Criterions, which is content is on. You got to get a credit card and you got to max it out buying double disc editions and box sets of Criterion. That's I, just what you I need. Have, I have a Criterion pre-order right now. So. Oh, for, oh yeah, for Portrait of the Lady on Fire? Yes. Yeah, of course. Pretty good. Um, yeah, I just, it's, it, they're, they're an interesting, like, um, I mean, I think every Godard film from that era is, I think, considered um, pivotal to understanding Godard. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to understand him, and you're not going to pretend to understand him. Um, but I think we have a few months. We have a few months to ask to the go- guy before Corona gets him. Yeah, yeah, he should be staying inside. I hope you are staying inside, Jean-Luc Godard. Um, but they make an interesting um, triple showing in that um, Breathless and Band of Outsiders is is. Um, they look a lot alike. They function in, in similar ways, and Contempt really doesn't function like either of those movies. Um, it's in color, for one. It's shot in Cinemascope, for two. And I think it's funny, if you read Roger Ebert's review of um, Contempt, I think he wrote it in like 1997 or something like that. I'm not sure what it was for. But he almost makes it seem like um, Contempt was made specifically to sh- so Godard can say how much he dislikes Cinemascope. Or like modern film techniques and, and things like that, you know those big Hollywood, those big Hollywood techniques and things. Um, I mean, this entire film is saturated with um, that sort of, which is odd because it's so it's so weirdly successful. Um, in in contempt, um, Paul played by Michael Piccoli, um, still alive, also hopefully inside. Yeah, <laughs> everyone, anyone that we mentioned today that's still alive should be indoors. Also, uh, which is a good percentage of the people yeah. in this film. Get your DoorDash going, you know, Postmates yeah. or whatever it is, whatever whatever service you use. Get him to leave it on the steps. Don't go outside. Um, he is a a a a a writer, and he has been hired. Um, or he. Yeah, I guess he has been hired. He's been asked to uh, to come to a meeting with Fritz Lang and uh, Jeremy Prokosh, played by Jack Palance. Um, he is a producer. Fritz Lang is playing himself. He is the director, and they are making an adaptation of uh, The Odyssey. Um, and Jeremy Prokosh does not like what he sees on the screen. He does not like what Fritz Lang has given him. Uh, the only part he likes in the movie, there's there's a pretty in the screening part one, is the mermaid a scene. Really good, yeah. One one moment of physical comedy I like in that is when um Jeremy in in a moment of rage kind of like slaps all the reels away. Yeah, and like the one assistant's picking it all up and he slaps it again mm-hmm. and then she just sits down. <laughs> well, there's there's that part and then there's the weird part at the end where, um, Paul is telling them that the, he's you know spoiler alert as we get into this conversation is telling them that they're, he's not going to do the, he's not going to write the script because of some things we'll get to in a little bit. And Jack Palance just like steps over the couch and then just goes to the window and is like, <laughs> no, and, and just, stands, just on stands on the window, on the window, on the windowsill. <laughs> it's Jack really, Palance, just really weird. Doing some work here. Just some weird work that I like. Well, the best part about Jack Palance in this movie is he is doing work, but it also no one else in this movie is doing the same level of work. He's no, the yeah. only one. So he looks like a t- he looks like a total idiot. Um which I guess <laughs> which maybe he's supposed sense, yeah. to. Um uh Jeremy Prokosh wants more sex in this movie. He has an idea about he wants Ulysses' character to be. He wants um 
Ulysses to have spent 10 years away from from home because he just he's had enough of of Penelope. And he just and Penelope does, doesn't want Penelope doesn't want him either. Yeah, so he just he just spends 10 years away from home and and uh Fritz Lang doesn't want to do this and and Paul's kind of on the fence and one of the reasons that Paul is on the fence is cuz Paul is married to Camille who's played by Brigitte Bardot and um and and Jerry Prokosh this is my first exposure to Brigitte Bardot, by the way. And, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I I agree with with her status in, in the time. Like, there, she's a an electric force, not just from her looks, but just from like the. She's very charismatic. Well, she's very. There's a way of carrying herself. I agree with you, and I think one of the interesting things about her is that she's not asked to do a ton here. Um, you know, she doesn't have to have that. Um, Like a, she doesn't have to come at the situation with like a, a real force. She can kind yeah, of. She has like a very level. Yeah. yeah. Um. But she's. You still get the idea that she's kind of twisted up inside, even though she's already made up her mind about things. You know what I mean? You get the. You get the sense that there's a lot going on inside that character, even though, um, you know, the studio wanted him to cast her just so they can have her essentially naked in this movie, and when they didn't get as much Bridget Bardot nudity as they wanted. They, he reshot that opening scene with him, like te- with her asking him how he feels about all the parts of her body with like just her naked on the bed and all those other things. Oh, like the, the most gratuitous butt shot. In, like, But they just put that stuff in there. And I mean, Roger Ebert says, and Roger Ebert's really attuned to things that like are, um, uh, like I- ironic eroticism. I don't know why he seems so attuned to that. Maybe it's working with Russ Meyer and stuff like that, but he's really, like he does, he- From focus- all those years from dating Oprah. Yeah. <laughs> he he focuses a lot in his reviews on the idea of um, ironic eroticism. And he's just like, these are not, he put it in there, but they're not like erotic scenes. They're just like normal scenes. You know what I mean? And then there's a montage. There's like a series of, uh, a sequence of montages in here where they're literally just showing her legs and her naked butt, just like, still on a on a thing and it's just it's weird but it also kind of works for the for the for the um the comment that godard is making here um she and and paul are getting they've they've come to an impasse in their relationship even though they're married because um jerry clearly um wants to make a move on her very obviously and um he invites Camille to go to uh, his villa to take a, to ride with him to the villa, just her and him. Um, and Paul just lets her go. He just says, like, OK, go. Um, this, in Camille's mind, uh, makes him less of a man and she no longer loves him anymore because of it. Um, he will do it again later in the movie. Um, he will then deliver a speech with Fritz. Him and Fritz Lang will have a conversation about this exact situation happening Um in uh the odyssey um which is you know really on the nose but i don't think godard was trying to make it really subtle um and so the middle of this movie which i thought was really fascinating is like 45 minutes of just uh paul and camille having a marital you know just a marital discord one night before dinner it's it's basically forty five minutes of the um, Jude Law Natalie Portman airport hotel scene. Yeah, and but, it, but done better, 
Right, because, I mean, the thing I loved about that scene is that... From closer, from closer. There's a bunch of stuff that I liked about that scene, you know, visually. Um, one of the things I liked about that scene, though, is the fact that... So you mentioned... That's interesting that you mentioned closer, because you know how Natalie Portman is, like... She's happy to be there. You yeah. Know, when we get there, and um, she's, she's into this, she wants this relationship to work, but then Jude Law kind of... Jude Law kind of kills it. At no point in their conversation, in their 45 minutes locked in that room or in their apartment, do you get the idea that Camille is actually into this? She Hmm. just kind of wants um, this to go away as quickly as humanly possible. And I suppose she would might be into it if Jerry or Jerry, if Paul proves some way that he is he is a man or that he is worthy of her of her love. But he doesn't. Well, Um, I think. I, I want to get into this after the plot description. I, yeah. I, I actually have an interesting, I don't know if it's interesting because this film I'm sure has been reviewed to high heaven, but I have a, a take on this, like how I, I read it. Okay. But, I'll continue ahead. then. Um, one of the things they fight about is that uh, Jeremy has invited them to go to uh, Capri, his villain Capri, and they're going to shoot some of the scenes there. And Paul wants to go because he thinks he should, because it's his producer. Um, he also might want to go because uh, there's an Italian interpreter that he's slapping on the bottom, um, you know, and and, and yeah, that his seems hands. that seems real gross, yeah, especially from a modern perspective. Um, but she doesn't want to go. She wants him to tell. Also, Georgia Mall, stay inside. Yeah. <laughs> um. She doesn't want him to go. She doesn't want to go. She wants him to tell him that he's not going to go. That may be one of the things that may redeem him in his in her mind. Um, they end up going. Um, he gets in this situation again where uh, Jerry wants to take Camille alone, and Jor- and Paul says, "Fine, you know, take her." Um, the villa is is uh, is fantastic. There's some tremendous. Um, stairs that are that go to the top of the house that you know go to like a patio on the top of the house um that are really you know exquisitely shot he sees from that vantage point he sees in uh, fact that was like the uh the cat it was like casa malparte um i believe that shot where he's stepping up on it was used for the 2000 at like 12 um or it's just it's what it used for one of the posters from con just because that shot of, of oh, okay. paul going up on the steps and yeah. it worked because it's like, Godard's not known for his shots, but that's a shot. Well, this is another interesting thing we can talk about, too, about the fact that he hated CinemaScope and he hated working in this way so much, but he made a tremendously but then he, beautiful He just movie. knows how to do it. Yeah. Um, which which works for his, like, hatred of it. It's just like, yeah, I can fucking do it. But yeah, I, I could it. do it. I just no. don't want to. Um, he sees uh, Jeremy and and uh, and uh, Camille kiss. Um, After, But to be sure, like, Camille makes sure... He sees him kiss. Yeah. Paul's watching. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of back and forth about whether or not he should do the movie. Um, he tells Jeremy that he's not going to do the movie. And then he has a conversation with Camille where he almost wants her to, uh, tell him to do the movie. Um, they end up, you know, splitting up. Uh, she goes back to Rome with, uh, Jeremy and then Jack Palance drives their Alfa Romeo into a gas truck and they die. And they, they are dead. And then Paul Driver sh- Alpha Romeo. I like that line. That's like that's a good line too. Yeah. Um, no, is it get get in the Alpha Romeo? Romeo. Um Paul shakes Fritz Lang's hand. They shoot the they shoot the scene of, of Ulysses viewing his homeland again. 
and then there's a call for call for silence and then the movie ends um it's like an hour and 45 it's a good hour 45 it doesn't feel that way it moves really fast no it doesn't does not feel like an like an old it doesn't feel like a movie from 1963 it doesn't feel it's like obviously dated in terms of its um relationship to um you know all the me too stuff and, and what have you like politi- or you know politically and, and and culturally it's it's dated and that stuff but it, it's a it's an easy watch it's a, it's actually a pleasurable watch there's a there's a degree of I don't know there's there's a certain lack of there's a weird uncomfortable sense of forcefulness to it the not romance but to the sexual interludes that is um not as bad as has films of its era i i should say well it's it's, it's and I, I would say camille's definitely a, a very strong character yeah um like there's there's a, a constant attempt to to demean her and and to you know to under underline her as a lesser to paul you know him constantly saying you don't want to be a typist again when he slaps him her. slapping yeah. her well, there's, um, I mean, I think but Roger, that she's she's always in control of the situation. Though. It's interesting because Roger Ebert mentions the fact that he thinks he sees um, Paul as kind of a stand-in for Godard in the situation that he's kind of left in this like lose-lose situation. He has to kind of betray his artistic beliefs um, so he can make some money, or he has to um, you know sell out um, type of thing. Um, I don't know. I feel like. Godard is making a pretty clear statement in this movie about how he feels about what he's doing. And I feel to that end, um, Camille would technically be his stand in of someone who's just, um, so in tune with, uh, their convictions that even given the opportunity to like, you know, live in this flat instead of a hotel and to have it all paid off and have this other place. Um, she's not going to suffer. She's not going to do this the way everybody wants her to do it. You know what I mean? She's not yeah. going to do, she's not just going to take it just because she wants to live in a nice house. Just, yeah, I almost felt, I almost felt as though Camille was Godard's stand in versus Paul. Like I Paul, think so too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think Godard, I mean, and this is, you know, putting the words into the mouth of, of everything. Um, I feel as though Paul is what Godard sees himself as. But Camille is like his idea of what he wants to be, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe that's pursue, a good idea. Yeah. Pursue the art that you want. But if that fails, then you always have this thing to fall back on that at least you have control over because mm-hmm. um, they try, constantly try to demean her being a typist. But when she says she's going to go back, like when she's talking to Jerry at the gas station and, and pointing out the typing mm-hmm. and whatnot, there's a real conviction to that and jerry's trying to like downplay that and she's like no i'm gonna come back and be a typist i'm gonna go back to my roots i'm gonna find myself again and i'm gonna build from that um what i find interesting though to me is is early on in that vi- that villa scene um where you know camille and, and jerry have kind of been there for half an hour mm-hmm. and she gives paul like like a lot of this has to deal with like emasculation with Paul, like emasculating himself and, and uh, servility to um, Jerry, mm-hmm. but she, you know, she says, "Where, where are you?" And there's a way in which Brigitte Bardot says that to him that still suggests, like, if you're earnest with me and honest with me, that like you did this out of a certain amount of servility, or you did this out of like a fealty 
to Jerry to to advance your career, I understand. Mm-hmm. And the second he starts lying to her, that's when she like peels back. And, and I find that to be to be what really intrigued me to this film is, is the fact that like you open the entire film with that, that scene where, you know, he's describing how she's asking him all these questions that, that kind of demand a certain earnestness or honesty, yep. you know, like he, she's asking about each body part and, you know, it, it is, it is trying to find a way to see like, is he, you know, is he being, is there a full dialogue? between the two of us mm-hmm. is, is there is there honesty and i feel as though just from reading a lot of the reviews it's just like when he automatically has a servility or emasculation to jerry that's when she turns away from him i didn't get that from this what i got from this is she turns away from him when he lies to her mm. when he says like oh you know the taxi was late if he had said like oh i was just running late you know or if he had just kind of like if there had been still that earnestness and the way I kind of read that is then like, you know, with this being like Godard's like first big budget film, you know, and still having that divisiveness of being a really popular kind of like uh Mori via novel um, was like a ghost at noon or whatever. Yeah, I can't even imagine what that novel would be. <laughs> yeah. It's I couldn't imagine being a very exciting novel, No, no, um, no. but just having that budget and having that kind of like, major cast and like putting in the people that like Godard himself really respected it feels like there's this like this sort of contemplation on dishonesty Mm. and like that's the reason why she has that contempt for him it's not necessarily because he so sold himself out and sold out the things he believed in but the fact that he wasn't honest about that so I think there's it's interesting that you say that I think there's two things at play here because I think one of the really fascinating so I'm, I'm glad we both have two different fascinating things that we're taking away from this. One of the fascinating things that I found was that, um, so the blue and red filters in that, in that first scene when they're talking about her body. I was like, what is like, what is happening with these blue and red filters? And it was interesting that I had just watched his newest documentary um, this last year, uh, the image book. And he does, he plays with color all the time in that, you know what I mean? He, he manipulates Mm -hmm. the color of film stock literally constantly. Um, These are just filters though. You know what I mean? He's not doing anything afterwards. He removes, if he puts a filter on, he takes the filter off, he puts a different filter on, but then there's those colors on, there's the colors on the gods, you know what I mean? When in the Fritz Lang movies, the, the color eyes and the and eyes, that, yeah. and they match exactly to to the colors. Then blue and blue and red are big colors in this thing, but it almost seems like there's a you got the red uh, couch and everything, the red yeah. couch, and then the blue chairs, and then the blue couch um, at the villa, and then the the red the red blanket, and then you have the yellows, the yellow robes that it, blues of the ocean. Wearing. Yeah, um, there's almost a sense here that. Um, it's not that he's being dishonest with her. It's that there are, it's almost like there are artistic gods watching, you know, him. You know what I mean? Oh, no, no. And, yeah, exactly. And that's, so I think he, that's what has I'm to, to say. he has to answer to them literally constantly and he can never do it. Like he can never figure out. So all of a sudden when he's telling Jack Palance that he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to write his movie, it's because he wants to go back and like write plays. It's like, well, he was, I thought he was a crime novelist. You know what I mean? I didn't think he was a a playwright. I thought they said pretty early on that he was a crime novelist. Yeah, um, and that's so and he's that's can't kind even of make up his mind. He's just kind of doing whatever he's doing. I thought. I mean, that the the scene, the really quick moment when he like walks through the door 
like that doesn't have any glass in it while opening it. Um, I thought it was like a fairly, um, telling. oh, he actually like opens the door and walks, walks through it, closes it, then walks through it without the glass. Right. Yeah. But then later he walks through the glass part and opens the door at the same time. So it's it's the it's the showing of the kind of like having your cake and eat it too almost mentality. Like I can get through this door any way I want. Um, he won't commit to being any specific type of person. And Bridget Bardot kind of makes that point to him as well when she like mocks him for thinking that he wants to try to be Dean Martin because he's wearing the fedora and always smoking the cigars and stuff like that. More um, like Martin's ass. Yeah. And like, which is a joke of like when Camille and Paul say their favorite Fritz Lang movie is that one with um, Marley Dietrich, uh, Rancho Notorious. You know, just one of the Westerns he did after he kind of like went to America. Um, and then Fritz Lang kind of offhandedly says like, well, I like M, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, M's pretty it's good. Just, it's kind of like it's kind of like one of those moments of just like, yeah, you think you, like you think, you know, film, but like this is what film is to me well the fritz lang thing is really interesting did you read it all like i took all of jerry's kind of moments like that yeah did you read it all about how fritz lang ended up being in this movie is it just one of those things where godard just like respected him and and he wanted to do it i mean this is the last thing that he did i think before he just kind of retired to la um for the remainder of his life like, i don't think he directed or acted in another movie after this i didn't read it but a lot of the i didn't read exactly how he got like Lang involved. Mm-hmm. I know he Godard had an extreme love of Lang, but I, I feel as though there's like this clash of, of the idea of cinema um, there. And I, you know, Scott kind of mentions this of, you know, Fritz Lang being kind of like the champion of and Fritz Lang has been something we've been talking about for a long time in this podcast yeah. because of me uh first like <laughs> being like the champion of the mizans the mizan scene you know like like presenting the images on the screen that conveys the emotion and the thematic kind of yeah, drive yeah. you want to get yeah um versus modernism or, or modernism the the kind of reductionist kind of image of, of dialogue and and, and the, sh- the scenes itself not really mattering as much but it matter the characters and the ideas and the themes being driven through, through dialogue that, you know, kind of contempt conveys um, versus kind of like the, the terse brutishness that kind of Jerry wants, um, which is kind of like that impeding sort of Hollywood late six, like mid sixties or late fifties, basically post-war boomer sort of, explosion of film of being more kind of like this visceral experience Mm -hmm. um and i I almost see lang being in this as kind of like this like intermediary not intermediary but being this kind of like hallmark of of one image of film that godard loves godard representing kind of this like transition and jerry representing this kind of like movement in a different direction that he doesn't want Mm. you know like I, I feel almost as though contempt is like this argument towards like conveying deep thematic emotions visually to conveying deep thematic ideas and emotions verbally and jerry kind of just wants this very terse um sophomoric sort of language conveyed visually well it's funny because i think there's um 
I think in some of like the most, I mean, there's some incredible shots in this movie. I mean, and he has Godard has Fritz Lang say like cinemascope is just for snakes and funerals, um, which is hilarious. And Godard himself plays like Lang's assistant director in this. Yeah. So there's not like, but he uses the cinemascope to such a degree, but there's, there is a weird kind of, um, like emptiness to to some of those like amazing shots, but there it's some of the most purposeful emptiness that I've like ever seen in a movie. You know what I mean? Like the state, like the scene on those stairs has no real thematic bearing to anything that's happening. Like I guess you could say like, oh, he's got to climb, he's gonna he's gonna climb all these steps to get to get to Camille. You know what I mean? To get to this. To, but it, you know, of, he's got to do all this work to get her. But that's 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 pretty loose. You know what I mean? Also, no, I, I think that emptiness serves a real tactile point in the sense that they are discordant from the plot. Like Paul is not climbing. Paul's not doing anything to kind of like grow towards Camille. That that's not at all the purpose there. And you contrast that with what Lang had did in the past with Metropolis, where he has that, you know, very flat two-dimensional machination uh, of people working for the machine to kind of like build Metropolis itself. I talked about that at length in episode 80, whatever. Or, um, you know, Peter Lorre's standing trial for child murder in M and just like the faces that he makes, like Peter Lorre being that real visual actor or even something, you know, to, to Lang's like, later noir work when he first enters Hollywood or, or some of his kind of lesser work with Dr. Mabose where that, that visual palette matters. Um, you know, Godard's more of a kind of like a verbal director where, where the thematic drive and kind of the story drive is, is told through the actor's words and not so much eh, somewhat through their body language, but not necessarily through the scene that envelops them. And it feels that that stuff to me felt like as though, you know, Godard was making a very careful point that, like, cinemascope and these these beautiful wide vista shots don't really matter much. You know, they they can it can be beautiful, but if it's not serving the point of the film itself, what the fuck does it matter? Yeah, well, I thought it, it was interesting that we're having this conversation because I was reading this um, for for uh, my master's. I've been reading this book by Charles Baxter. Um, called the art of subtext and one of the chapters of the book is about faces and how in uh, modern literature we don't um, describe faces anymore in the same way that we used to in like the 19th century you know charles dickens and all these people they would nathaniel hawthorne rolling in his grave because oh he describes everything nathaniel hawthorne like who used the words physiognomy like six times on a page <laughs> You um, see that you see that background character that's never going to be presented. That's just looking at that person over here's, there. Here's a page of description here's, about them. That's what their face looks like. Um, but I was so when I was watching Breathless and I was watching Band of Outsiders. One of the things I noticed about okay, like I, you know, I've got that in my head, and then I'm I'm watching Contempt, and then I watch those two movies, and they don't hinge on plot as much as they hinge on the emotions conveyed by people like in their faces. You know what I mean? When he can let a shot linger on somebody's face for more than like two seconds so it was really interesting like to think back on contempt and think about that 45 minute like marital dispute that they had in their apartment where they're both just kind of walking back and forth between each other and you don't really get a good sense of what either of them looks like facially you have that one really um interesting exchange when he pans back and forth across that light when they're you know which i guess roger ebert said he did because he was using the uh the cinemascope kind of you know to be a Playing jerk yeah. yeah um so you have 
their faces and those things, but you don't have like a clear sense of their face. You have you have profiles. They don't linger on them very long. They cut back to that light, just kind of like, you know, they pass by that light that's just kind of flickering there. Um, there's a lot of shots. Also, from I also love uh, far the focus. Away. Well, what I love is also like the focusing on the statue, where it's just like it serves no point except for Paul to like tap on it at different levels and be like, oh, it's not equal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but again, those it's weird because those the focus on those statues, those couple of, you know, I don't, I, I wish I would have timed it. You know what I mean? If I was a better film critic, Mario, we would like stop movies and just like time stuff and like try to draw a relationship between like the specific amount of time that like a specific thing was on a screen and like what that could possibly mean to, to the overall meaning of the film. Um, the second I can make $2,000 a month off of film criticism, my <laughs> film criticism level will skyrocket will right up. Um, but yeah, he just lingers on those on those faces, and you know, a million different kind of movies passed through my head when they were just lingering on those faces with those painted eyeballs and the painted mouth and stuff like that. But those are the longest close-up shots of faces that you get. How many in this of those movie. films are? How many of those thousand movies are Peter Berg movies? By the way, <laughs> all of them. Battle me and I could not get Battleship out of my head when I was watching this. You're movie. just like that's a real lone survivor moment right there. <laughs> I did. I did. Like this has... every, every time I see a movie, I'm like, how's this compared to the Palmas Snake Eyes? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, who directed Jade? That David Caruso movie. Oh, God. I always think of Snake Eyes and Jade in the same like conversation. Same and, movie. Eight mil- and then I said, And 8 millimeter. And 8 millimeter. And then I said, Nicolas Cage is in all of those movies. Is he in Jade? Yeah, he's like the villain in Jade. He's oh, bench pressing the right. woman. Remember oh, the famous scene where he bench presses a person? I never saw Jade because my parents didn't let me watch it because they thought it was too sexy. David Caruso will do that to you, man. He left NYPD was, Blue to make that movie. That was Linda Florentino, right? Yeah. I remember really wanting to be uh, watch that movie because I was super into Linda Florentino at that time. So it was Jack. Oh, my God. Who do you think directed it, by the way? Jade? Yeah. Paul Verhoeven. Just take, a, just take a guess. We were talking about nope. him last week. Sometimes you do that to me. I don't know who did it. William Friedkin. Oh my God, he did. Yeah. I got to go back and listen to that WTF episode. I wonder if in the two and a half hours they mentioned that at all. <laughs> I know they spent like an hour on Sorcerer, and then the time oh they... Robert Robert Evans produced it too. Well, that makes sense. Rest in peace, Robert Evans. May your sunglasses ever carry you into the whatever. You, you, Did you ever listen to that William Freakin WTF? I did not. Okay. I don't. I've never. I've never listened to a single WTF. If you listen to the William Freakin, also ones. William Freakin, stay inside. Yeah, William Freakin, definitely, and he might be in Italy too, um, because he. Well, so one of the so he talks about so they talk about sorcerer for like an hour, and then uh, for, it's like a two and a half hour interview, and then for another hour, who would ever talk? They talk about. It's amazing for two hours. No, they don't talk about for cruising that long. The other thing they talk about for like almost an hour is the time that William Friedkin got to see the Turin shroud because he's a super Catholic. Did you know that? I'm not surprised, but yeah. Can you, can you guess my favorite William Friedkin movie? Killer Joe. It's number two to live and die in LA, man. Okay. That's nice, but back to contempt. Back to contempt. Um, so those are really that was a, like an interesting triple feature there that I watched and, and kind of put together. Um, 
And I think one of the problems with our little project here is that like when you see one of these movies and then you look at like a filmography, you're just kind of like, I probably should see a lot of these movies so I can make sense of what this like this movie means in context. Is that a problem given our current situation? It is for me because I have kids. So like part of me wants to say like, oh, Mario, let's do um, I haven't seen Mirror yet. Let's do our Tarkovsky episode now. Let's both watch Mirror, and we will be very happy. But part of me also wants to watch all the Tarkovsky movies on Criterion Channel. And, like, I don't know. I feel like my kids are not going to love Stalker. You know what I mean? I feel like they're not going to love Andrei Rublev. Wait, I don't know. I was like, are, we, are we saying we're doing Mirror next week? No, no, but I wanted to suggest it. Uh, Let's do Mirror next week. All right. But I'm saying that now I want to watch all the Tarkovskys and my kids aren't going to like them as much as they probably should. Well, you have to start them somewhere. I suppose. So it's especially during this time where a little hard medicine is necessary, right? Maybe. Maybe. But um, so on contempt, that ending, I don't necessarily get the point of the ending. Which part of the ending? Oh, just just of the massive amount of death that comes at the ending. Um. Well, I don't know. I mean, if it's a studio, I'm surprised a studio movie would let him do it. Um, because it's such a big like fuck you, like these- which, uh, which it might, may have happened in the book. Uh, I'm not. I, I don't know, but like you have the two biggest stars in the movie, you know. Um, I guess maybe Fritz Lang, but probably yeah. Fritz Lang was probably calm your, calm your shit. It goes Fritz Lang, everybody, <laughs> whoever's done this movie. <laughs> okay, um, but they just randomly die, like and and they, and they randomly die after he makes fun of her. I mean, again, they didn't care about that in the sixties. Um, but he's like, you're out of your head. And then she just makes a bunch of typing gestures, and then she makes that joke that you mentioned before, and then they're dead. Um, and then you know, which had this movie been made nowadays, Godot would have—I mean, Godard would have definitely just fucking decapitated them. Well, I mean, I thought it was pretty interesting the way that he like shot that too, because you know, her head just kind of resting there on the on like the side of the car. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, again, I have no idea. Like, if it means something specific, except it was, it was jarring. It was. She seemed very like comfortable. There was a there. Uh, there was like an innocent quality to, um, how that looked, um. Where she didn't seem like she belonged in that in that setting, which I suppose is probably true, and maybe that's exactly what she is saying is that, you know, he feels you know to draw a parallel like we mentioned before to himself. He feels that he is being this by making this movie. He is um, taking a stand against something specific, something he cares about. In reality, that stand isn't going to be worth very much because um, if he lets them, the Hollywood system will consume him. Um, Band of Outsiders, from that perspective, is a really interesting movie because it's literally just jumps right back into like breathless territory. Although you can see. Um, some of of Tim taking techniques that he had learned since Breathless and and, and transposing them over like a Breathless scenario. So like some okay. of the car scenes, like just to draw like a, a really easy comparison to make in case anyone's interested in doing this. You know, um, there's a a car scene really early in Breathless, and it and it just it's just a person and a camera holding a car, and um, 
he's fumbling with a gun and he's like talking to himself and all this other stuff. There's no, well, art. I know the scene you're talking about. There's no art to it. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's a, a camera is running and he's filming it and it is what it is. Um, there's car scenes very early on in Band of Outsiders too, um, which countless directors have stolen from, you know, in just in the last couple of years. So, you know, we're talking about like Wes Anderson movie, like car scenes in Wes Anderson movies. We're talking about the Phantom Thread. I mean, the the um what's his name in phantom thread um daniel day lewis yeah but what's his name reynolds woodcock when he's driving when he's driving to the country um that is a band of outsiders like homage it looks exactly the same like even the trees kind of look the same that line the road look kind of look the same and it functions in the same way well let me let me ask this so i Godard and I do not have a very conducive relationship, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, every time I've tried to like get into Godard, there's been a real stalling point with, I don't necessarily call it pretension, but uh, there's this kind of like a lackadaisiness that Godard has that I, I don't respond to. Mm-hmm. Contempt was the first film that I really kind of like felt something with and and there's that still that kind of like not necessarily called laxity i mean no laxadaisical is interesting like, but it, it, it still it still has that kind of presence to it yep but there's like a little more urgency with the story where do you go from there if you want to like well so find I'm, godard palatable here's what i i think well, Godard, interestingly enough gets less pal- palatable as the years go by he gets very difficult um, he gets very uh, impressionistic. Um, I think contempt is probably like the most digestible thing. Although, like, Band of Outsiders is is an excellent movie and is perfectly digestible. And again, I don't really know enough about Godard. Maybe Richard Brody, if he hears this, can can fill us. He can come on. He can get on a Zoom meeting and he can fill us in. Um, and then he can and watch us make funny faces at each other when our internet connection fails. Um, but I think it's it's interesting. I was having this conversation with myself and I was watching Breathless and, and I was thinking about uh, John Cassavetti, like early Cassavetti's obviously. And um, uh, go, the way I thought about it was this, is that Godard really wanted to see how far he could push um, like traditional cinema and like see where like, you know, to not, not turning the camera off. The camera is like always being moving. Um, like how he shot it, the locations that he's shooting, the people that he's shooting, where um, Cassavetes really just wanted to see how far he could push a dollar. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't so super, super interested in, in transforming cinema. And maybe Godard wasn't either. It was just like a product of like what his ideas were. But Cassavetes was super interested in just kind of getting the thing done in the only way that it was possible for him to get it done. You know what I mean? Yeah. He wasn't trying to... to um, transcend uh, you know cinema and i think some of the other some of his later movies kind of prove that is that like woman under the influence and killing of a chinese bookie and stuff like that and love streams aren't necessarily like super difficult movies you know what i mean they're not impressionistic they're not abstract they're just movies um they're really good movies but he's not trying to recreate the wheel here you know what i mean i think godard at times is is trying to recreate the wheel. And you see that a little bit with contempt. You see it like in the sound. Also, design. I've never seen killing of a Chinese bookie either, by the way. Again, 
It's uh, I feel criterion. This, 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 uh, this quarantine is going to make our listeners realize I have seen a lot of nothing when it comes to important films. Yeah, but see, so I don't know if this is like a conversation we necessarily need to have right now, but my interest was not so much like covering bases or anything like that. It was just one of these things where I just, I have a spending, I have a spending problem and Criterion films seem like a really good thing to spend your money on um, because they were expensive and they were seemed exclusive and they all had numbers on them. And so you could put them in a row, you could put them alphabetically or you could put them in a row by number. Um, and or by or even by like theme yeah and they were hard genre. to get and they had movies that you couldn't see anywhere and that really appealed to me so i bought a lot of them i have a, a not spending money problem where i just like to hoard money i wish i had that problem Mario. although the quarantine is really helping with that yeah the quarantine's helping with that a lot because i feel guilt i feel back, super guilty sorry. ordering stuff from amazon so go sorry ahead. back to the cassavetti's point sorry um but yeah so that's it i mean so it's uh there's there's two different things at play here. I mean, I think they're both they're both operating um, out of the same. <sighs> they're they're operating obviously in the same time period, and they're both I think trying to do something similar in the sense that they're trying to like subvert um, what making a movie consisted of. You know what I mean? I think that's where contempt mm. where contempt gets its probably its its name from and its attitude from is the fact that just like. You know, he he's doing this thing that he doesn't believe in at all. Like, you know, I don't think um, Jack Palance's character believes in cinema as a as a as a, a means of expression. He, it's just a way to make money where I think yeah. Godard and Cassavetes were trying to express something very specific. Um, Godard just wanted to he I'm assuming wanted to break boundaries in a way where Cassavetes um, just wanted to get the thing out and into that point i gravitate way more toward cassavetes and i do godard because i am also a person who is less concerned with the over like how how something works necessarily than whether or not it's done whether or not it i, I works whether out. or not it satisfied my need to express that that story or that feeling or whatever yeah um but that yeah makes sense i don't necessarily understand it yet but it makes sense but Godard is a I think we'll have a, a much more fun time with like um some of these other directors who are not so um like uh oblique or opaque is Tarkovsky that sort of director well Park Tarkovsky is just so much fun because his movies are just so like awesome I mean, you're. I mean, so have, which have you? Which Tarkovskys have you seen? Just Solaris. Just Stalker. Just Stalker, but wasn't Stalker awesome? This is fine. It was awesome. I mean, it's not like my favorite movie of all time or anything like that. I'm not Jeff Dyer, but it's like there's there's stuff happening in Tarkovsky movies. You know what I mean? Where in this, it's like, yeah, that was cool, or that's interesting, or, um, like I'm surprised this is the 20 number 21 on this list of movies especially with like things that have that come after this so i mean like immediately following this you have the godfather which i'm fine with but is is you know i'm surprised about that 
um, In the Mood for Love, which is kind of high. Rashomon is after this. Have you seen In the Mood for Love yet? I have not. I also have not seen In the Mood for Love. I am down to watch that at some point. We'll do that too. Um, well, I mean, so what we could do, Mario, is we could skip The Godfather because I'm not interested in watching it again. I've, I've seen. About it. I've seen The Godfather. Like, no, we're, we're we're doing movies. Re both have not seen. Right. Um, did you see Ordet, the Carl Dreyer movie? Uh, well, next we're talking about next week, right? Yeah. Well, next week is Mirror. Okay, we could Tarkovsky. do Mirror too. But there's there's yeah. Like I'm surprised Mulholland Drive is on this list. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's there's definitely some movies I haven't seen. Like I said, of the top twenty, the films I haven't seen are Man with a Camera. Yep. Um, Sunrise. I've only seen Searchers once, but I'm not interested in watching it again because John Ford's just not my jam. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yeah. Mirror's nineteen, so. Le, le antelete. Um. I still have action. Not. I'm gonna say this. Uh, I know you've seen it, but I still haven't seen Late Spring. Got us. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I know I've Late it, Spring, but it's it's. I feel like we already watched an Ozu movie, and I feel like we're gonna watch Late. If you watch Late Spring, you're gonna be like, oh yeah, it's like that. Yeah, uh, I still haven't seen Ozard, Balthazar, um, and Persona. I think Mirror's the 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 one for next episode. Okay, let's do um, it. Look at After that, that uh, I don't give a shit about Godfather. Um, I actually haven't seen Ordu, but and and I would be I I'd be interested to watch or or do or or dead mm-hmm. or dead or Ordu just because like Dreyer, a lot of Dreyer's early work has definitely informed my view of mise en scene. But uh, you know, being someone who's not seen a lot of Tarkovsky, um. I'm ready during this pressing time to just dig into Tarkovsky. And you know what? After I think Tarkovsky would be good to like get into before Painted Bird. Yeah. Well, at some point this year, Painted Bird will come out, and I feel that though, if I my visual language of Tarkovsky's yeah good enough, I will appreciate Painted Bird more. So let's get into this. Let's switch. Let's switch gears a little bit. What have you been watching? Like besides, um, you know, uh, Jean-Luc Godard movies. Have you seen anything else? Have you caught anything? Um. Oh, newer movies or no? just anything like that? You know, is worth Do mentioning. Uh, not not really. Um, I've been catching up on Adele Hanal films. <laughs> Did you like Water Lilies? I. I liked Water Lilies, yeah. yeah. Um, I watched a couple other Adele Hanal films, and I'm a, I'm an Adele Hanal fan, <laughs> like through and through. I thought Water Lilies was fine. It's definitely a first feature. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with you on that. Um, I guess I guess we both see Water Lilies, so we could just talk about it briefly. It's yeah. There's a lot of promise to it, and there's a lot, but there's just not a lot of risk taken. With water lilies, but there's it's a weird. There's too much. Um, it's like way too serious. Um, yeah. So it's, but it's odd because it's hard to take anything that you're seeing. It's taken so seriously that it's hard for the viewer to take really any of it. And we're talking seriously. about the first uh, Cecile's uh, Celine Sciamma movie, yeah, uh, film. Um, 
Yeah, but there's all there, there's a lot of hesitation, which I found odd. Well, it, yeah, it, it hiccups a lot. Well, I think there's... I mean, it's still the thing. The thing I love about her filmography that I've seen so far, though, is she definitely lets her actors. There, there's not a lot of um, restraint on her actors. She's definitely letting them kind of do the scene. She's letting them do the, the what she's written for them, mm-hmm. which I, I respect. Um, but there's there's a lot of, uh, especially with Waterloo, there's a lot of like reservation. I feel like well, she's still there's really reservations concerned about like how the scenes interpreted yeah there's reservations but there's always there's also these weird um like shots and i don't mean shots like i mean there are shots like a camera shot but i also like shots like she's taking a shot um in that like like attempts to shock or attempts to kind of embarrass like for the for the um the good of the the theme or to like to make a like a, a larger point where she doesn't necessarily have to. And then there's other times where like, she just doesn't go, she doesn't go far enough and she doesn't let enough things happen emotionally or um, to really kind of to land the thing that she's like hoping lands. Um, so there's like the really early shot of that, the girl getting like uh, that guy walks in on that girl getting dressed. Hmm. Um, and you know, she's fully naked and I don't know how old she was when she did that or whatever. Um, um, but then you spend the next, and, uh, and yeah, but then you spend like a half another, the next half hour with like fairly muted, like emotions, almost like um, a director came to mind, where or almost like a or like a Yorgos Lanthimos movie, where people are just kind of like reading their lines robotically without like a lot of emotion behind them. You know well, what I, got, I mean? I got a little weird, like a lot of weird, so. My problem with this is like Anne kind of gets forgotten a lot during the middle. And so I got a lot of weird muted um, Ang Lee ice storm mm. feelings from it. Um, and, and I guess my biggest problem with this is just like Paulina Kurt uh, playing Marie and Adele Hanal playing, playing Florine do a lot of like facial acting in this that kind of just goes to the wayside. Mm. Like the plot just continually moves ahead. But like there's a lot of things being said with like the way their body language is, is presenting itself between the two that just kind of ends up feeling mechanical. Well, it's got nowhere to when go. It's trying to reach like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It, it has to get to the next scene, but there's a lot of nuance with the way those two are acting that kind of just, just falls away. And that was my problem with it. Yeah. Like I, I, I liked water lilies ultimately because I think the two of them, know what the fuck they're doing i like just from watching adele hanal stuff recently i think she's i'm I'm really glad she got signed by caa or whatever Mm -hmm. the hollywood agency is because i think she can fucking act her ass off because they're gonna put her in another like whatever the next bond movie is well let's hope not i hope not i hope they just like i hope i don't know i cut i i would hope that greta gerwig are um I forget her name right now from Can You Ever Forgive Me? Oh, um, Mariel Heller. Yeah, finds her because, like, she doesn't need a lot of direction. Mm-hmm. No, I think good. a Bond a Bond film would just be a fucking mistake. But you know that's um, going to happen. 
It's going to happen. I'd rather, I'd rather not think it's happening. It's going to happen. But the next time a Bond film will come around, she'll be like 36. She'll be too old, yeah. hopefully, well, the, for, for Bond films. I mean, so there's a lot of things that are happening. You know, I feel, uh, you know... There's I mean, like... I, think, I think Adele Hanna would just be a better... I, I almost feel... I almost want to see her direct. Uh, like, Amy oh, Semetza yeah, yeah. started to become, like, a big, like, director now. I think she just sold... Uh, I want to say she just sold Secrets... No, what'd she just sell? She just sold something, um, yeah. She dies tomorrow. She dies tomorrow. She just sold She Dies Tomorrow to Neon, which did Parasite and uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. But there was this, I don't know. Which I don't like know was great real... for her because Neon did great with Parasite and then fucked everything else up from last year. So, yeah. But hopefully. I mean, after, you know, her only appearance last year was in Pet Cemetery, but. I, I feel as though I don't know this 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 like foreign actress becomes Bond girl thing needs to end. Well, so you're basically advocating for the end of James Bond. I mean, as a big James Bond fan, sure. <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe I don't, I don't know. It fits kind of Anna de Armas's wheelhouse, I guess. She's I mean, too well known though at this point. I bet mean, she's she's going to be the Bond girl. <laughs> she's dating Ben Affleck. That's true, but uh, I feel as though Anna Darbus always struck me as kind of like somebody that like responds well to creative input, no matter where that comes from. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas like Adele Hanan or some of the other actresses who have just kind of like, um, I, I forgot her name, who's Inspector and is going to be in No Time to Die. Um, oh yeah, I, I'm not even gonna try to pronounce her name. Lee, Lee, uh, uh, Leah, Leah, Sadu, yeah. Uh, they they kind of have this 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 more of a sense of self direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I feel as though like the foreign actress suddenly being regulated to Bond woman sort of thing just needs to fucking end. Because like Adele Hanan, like, or or a lot of these actresses um, who kind of get um, like Eva Green, who get regulated to like those roles, just are being done a huge disservice. Oh sure, of course they are. But since when has Hollywood ever cared about doing a disservice to somebody, especially if they're a woman? I mean, who knows? Maybe now with a uh, coronavirus, Hollywood won't have much of a say on anything. Yeah, maybe everything is just gonna go, just implode, away. and then the rise of indie cinema. Promising Young Woman will be the highest grossing film of all of the year. Well, um, yeah, if they're smart with it and they release it on on demand, but we'll see if that happens. All right, we have you to know because I'm falling asleep. If a single, yeah, no, if a single film did not release this year, Bad Boys Three, for Life is the highest grossing movie of the year. Yeah, Martin the... Lawrence might win Best Supporting Actor. What wouldn't a year! Be, wouldn't it be funny if they still had the Oscars and they just it was just like that first couple of movies. Golden Globes already changed the rules for uh, for their award show this year. Which is what? Like about half of them show up in L.A. Uh, for a week before you go to streaming. So I think a lot of these smaller movies you're going to see are going to go streaming. I would I hope. hope so. I mean, if they're going to die, if they don't. I mean, they're just going to sit forever and then they're going to enter... They're going to enter the system at a time when uh, these theaters need to make money. So like Criterion and North Haven... Criterion New Haven and North Haven... And Milford and all these places are all going to carry the same movies because they just want people to come see them. 
So they're all going to carry Black Widow and Mulan yeah, and, yeah. you know, all this shit because they just want people to spend money. Yeah, you have, Dis- you have, you have Disney sitting on Mulan and Black Widow. And, and, and Soul. You know, and a, Soul. I mean, Soul maybe isn't done yet, but you have Quiet Place 2's already in the can. Like, Spiral's probably already done. Like, most of the films for May are done. And they're just waiting for the cinemas to open. I think I think a lot of these independent films, like First Cal, um, but I I mean I can't never even... sometimes always never sometimes never rarely sometimes always, and Promising a Woman and even like Saint Maud they just have to go to on demand. But i if you they... fucking, if you put if you put Promising Young Woman on streaming tomorrow for twenty dollars, I will. Yeah, me too. Pay twenty dollars to watch Promising well, Young that's, Woman. What I'm saying here is that these these smaller these smaller distributors are messing up if they think that they're going to try to like um manage this situation to a point where they get like maximum exposure for their movie it's done with exposure just get it out and get someone talking about it you know what i mean i know i understand that the yeah. kelly Riker put, kelly Riker's been out. talking put about her movie for a long time and so this is kind of like a dead space for her but you know doesn't matter just get it. Get first cow out onto streaming as quickly but as imagine, possible. Imagine, yeah, imagine, imagine if like you found Reddit on Tuesday. First cow is out on demand for twenty, like fifteen, twenty bucks on Friday. I'm spending twenty bucks. Yeah, me first too. Cow, just Absolutely. so I have something in, something new, something. Just so I feel some sense of normalcy. Well, just in- I'm not gonna spend twenty bucks on fucking. Ben Diesel's bloodshot. I'm no, gonna I'm not going to spend twenty bucks on, on the way back. I'm not going to spend twenty bucks on the way back. I'm not going to spend twenty bucks on any of this stuff. I will spend twenty bucks on, um, like independent cinema that deserves it and that needs it, and that I might really get something out of. Or I'm going to spend twenty dollars on Trolls World Tour because my kids are going to want to see it. But like other than that, you know, I'm not spending twenty dollars on your movie. That's what they were talking a lot about on on. Um, the ringers movie podcast about like, what if they released like James Bond or one of these big ticket movies on, on demand? Like what would the price point be? And they were like, Oh, you could probably do like a pay-per-view like ninety nine ninety nine for like James Bond or for Mulan or something like that. I was like, I don't think people are going to buy that. I think people just wait. No, you cannot because people will just, those movies no. have to go somewhere. No. Eventually they're not going to sit on them forever. So no one's going to spend a hundred dollars on it because they already spend a hundred dollars on all like across all platforms to subscribe to all this crap where James Bond will eventually show up for three ninety nine to rent for an after, for an evening. Yeah. Also also you put you put James Bond on demand for nine for a hundred bucks. You know what people are gonna do? Wait one day and then illegally download James Bond. But you put some of these smaller films on demand for $15, $20. I'm going to pay it because I want to see these smaller films exist. And I would have paid 10 to 12 anyway to see it in theaters. And you know what? You put James Bond online for 20 bucks. I'll spend it too, but you know, but you're not going to do it for not going to do that. No, of course not. All right. Well, let's um, wrap up here. This was very successful tonight, Mario. I'm glad from a sound. We can't say that. We can't say. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe not from a listenership standpoint. I hope all our listeners are doing well. Yep, I hope so too. Um, Remember when you bring groceries in to disinfect them? If you have some cardboard, get rid of the cardboard. If you have some paper, like some plastic baggage in that cardboard, keep that. Like, let's say you get some uh, groceries. You got some, uh, some. Uh, what do people love? Uh, the cinema, c- cinnamon toasted whatever. Cinnamon toast. What crunch. do people love? 
Like yeah, a cereal? Yep. Yeah. You just get rid of the cardboard. You throw that out. You keep the plastic because the plastic's fine on the inside. There just try and prevent our listeners from getting COVID because we have so few of them. I'd like to keep as many of them as possible. That was morbid. <laughs> don't get, don't get COVID-19, listeners. Um, but yeah, stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay home if you can. Uh, make good decisions. Um Try to you know it's, stay you know it's a good decision as much as humanly possible. You know it's a good decision to tweet us at Film Pivotal. Yep. I mean, maybe not a good decision, but to tweet at Film Pivotal or email us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. But a really good decision is to uh, drink a beer. Yeah, and watch a movie. And um, we, unless, uh, you know, extenuating circumstances get in our way, we will talk to you next week.